Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Novel Dialogue, a podcast sponsored by the Society for Novel Studies and produced in partnership with Public Books, an online magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship. On this podcast, we bring scholars and novelists together to talk about how novels work, how they're written, read, studied, and remembered. I'm Sarah Wasserman, one of the hosts at Novel Dialogue. Today, I have the honor of welcoming Hugo Award winner and New York Times bestselling author John Jennings, along with professor, editor, and translator J.C. Cloutier. This is an especially exciting episode because it's the podcast's first ever conversation about graphic novels. It's also exciting because today, the day that we're recording this, is February 1st, 2023, and so it's the day that the world gets to meet a brand new Marvel superhero, Silver Surfer Ghostlight Number 1, by John Jennings and Valentine Delandro hits stores today. So in addition to, you know, creating new Marvel superheroes, John Jennings is Professor of Media and Cultural Studies at the University of California at Riverside. He is co-editor of the Eisner award-winning collection, The Blacker the Ink, Constructions of the Black Identity in Comics and Sequential Art. His other projects include the horror anthology Box of Bones, the coffee table book Black Comics Returns, and the New York Times bestselling graphic novel adaptations of Octavia Butler's novels Kindred and Parable of the Sower. John is the director of Abrams Comic Arts imprint Megascope, which publishes graphic novels focused on the experiences of people of color. He is also the co-founder and organizer of the Schomburg Center's Black Comic Book Festival in Harlem. In conversation today with John is J.C. Cloutier, Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature at the University of Pennsylvania. J.C. is the author of the award-winning Shadow Archives, The Life Cycles of African-American Literature. He edited La Vie d'Hommage, a comprehensive volume of Jack Kerouac's original French writings, and he has translated into English Kerouac's two French novellas. JC is also co-editor of a scholarly edition of Claude McKay's Amiable with Big Teeth. His work has been featured in many scholarly journals and exhibition catalogs. At Penn, he regularly teaches comic studies, including a creative writing seminar with cartoonist Rob Berry on making comics, which is a class I'd very much like to enroll in myself. 
So welcome both of you to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm excited. And <laughs> I have the delightful role here of playing third wheel. So I'll just turn things over to you, JC, and pop back in now and again with a question or two. Okay, great. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, John, so good to see you again, my friend. Um, so you and I first met, what, like five, six years ago at the Hutchins Center at Harvard, and we were first, uh, we were both fellows together at the same time. This is this is pre your mega fame, I think, like just about the moment when Kindred was about to, to drop and be unleashed upon the world. And, uh, you know, we, our conversations were really uh, inspirational to me. And I'm just also was able to just walk upstairs and go see you do some comics up there in your in your office on the computer. Yeah. <laughs> um, which just amazing to see uh, unveiled before my eyes. And um, so I'm I'm really excited today to be able to kind of talk with you about your process and kind of dive into that uh, yeah. today on all sorts of uh, angles. You're kind of a Renaissance man, I feel, you know, that kind of your repertoire is so amazing. You, uh, you have so many different roles. And so this is a novel podcast. Now that we could thought, Think about that term graphic novelist versus comic comics being the term that I think you and I would use most often, but yes, graphic novel as a kind of, you know, a term that's been more popularized. Comics to me uh, are primarily a medium. It's a medium exchange. It's just like any other uh, mediation of a story. You know, uh, I would, I would say that the graphic novel is, um, is a format, <clears throat> you know, mm. graphic novel is a format. So, you know, in my head, anything over say like, 48 pages or, or 64 pages thereabouts um, become starts to become a, more of a graphic novel, you know, and I think some of it's based off of the idea of like the mainstream comics space where you have like, I don't know, 20, 22 page comic or so. But, um, you know, I just got a copy of like Schubert Lubiek, you know, which is, uh, you know, 500 pages. <laughs> so that's, that's definitely a graphic novel, right? Um, yeah, so I think that's, it's a format change. I think in some ways, like people have popularized the idea of the graphic novel because you have erudite scholars and folk who don't want to be seen reading comics, that kind of thing. But it's but you are reading a, just a big long comic book. Sorry, <laughs> you know, <that's>, <laughs> you know, that, you know. Uh, there's nothing different between, uh, you know, it's it's still. I mean, a graphic novel is still using the medium of comics to tell the story. Now, as far as like where I see myself in the lineage, man, um, that's a tough one because you know over the last. Uh, whew, I guess maybe 15 years or so, as you said, like I, I've, I've done a lot of, mm. won a lot of hats. And one of my main things that I've been trying to do is level the playing field as far as like who gets to, whose voices get seen, you know? Mm. I don't mind, I mean, you know, I, I, I love the medium and I, I love the classic comics. I'm a huge fan of like Will Eisner and Frank Miller and, you know, all the people that make, that make comics. So as far as like my, uh, you know how 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 I fit into the lineage of, of of comics. A lot of it, a lot of my work has been about um, going back and archiving. You know, creators of color. That's something I've been really into right now. That's what I call mm -hmm. sequential sankofa, which I'll I'll go back and look and see if I could find, um, particularly like black artists who maybe been uh, erased or their work has, is in the public domain. Kind of like you know re refurbishing it and representing it. You know. And, and kind of archiving it, so like a, almost like a like a critical archiving project. That's something I've been doing. Uh, that's kind of a hobby, <laughs> but for the most part, um, I've been trying to level the playing playing field uh, as far as like BIPOC creators. Um, and again, like I'm a huge fan of traditional comics by you know predominantly uh, you know white creators, like you know 
uh, Frank Miller is one of my influences, you know, mm. uh, Dilson Kevich, you know, Howard Chicken. The, the list goes on and on. I, I, I love the medium, but I also love the fact that there's these uh, uh, characters of color and creators of color that we haven't seen that, uh, and also independent comics too. So I've been trying to figure out like, you know, archiving, researching, theorizing, but then also creating venues where these where these people can come together and empower each other, both like spiritually, culturally, and financially. So that's why I started doing like the the um, the um, the Comic Cons, the ethnocentric Comic Cons. Mm. I just actually co-founded another one in Los Angeles called CamCon. You know, mm. um, and yeah, it was really cool. And uh, you know, and so the other thing is um, archiving. So me and my friend Damian Duffy, you know, once we realized that there was such a bustling like independent black uh comics movement we just wanted to try to figure out how to archive it and and, and represent it so people could, could understand that you know black comics and black comics returns were doing that so yeah and then you know trying to work in the mainstream as much as possible and uh and, and think about how those characters are, are affecting people I mean, at the end of the day like representation is extremely important yeah that's great i mean there's so many things you mentioned here that are going to the directions i wanted to to address with you today so let's talk about archiving uh, yes. that that you just uh, mentioned a lot so you also have been involved with a lot of curation of exhibitions and i noticed that you know that's one of the words that one of the labels that is used in to describe your role in megascope as curator right mm-hmm. uh in um and to me that's very tied to comics making itself even at the level of of the page so there's kind of both the meta textual aspect of curating and literal archives but also curation of the page itself and panels within that one of the you know hillary shoot talks about you know uh uh, panels comic book panels being windows through which events are seen then you've got others like roger sabin who talks about boxes of time you know uh, Scott McCloud, Boxes of Time, Temporal Mapping. Mm-hmm. And there's a French scholar that I'm blanking on his name. <laughs> I apologize, but he, the, the word he used that really kind of blew my mind was uh, vitrine, which is like display windows, like mm. panels as vitrines rather than just a window itself. But actually, so because when we think of a display window, like like Macy's or something, it's a right. very curated space, right? It's like a, such a controlled space. And curators exert control on space in a way, right? And I feel like whether it's the space of of, uh, of an exhibition, of an archive, right? That for exerting that kind of control, but also it really works at the level of um, of the panel itself. So, do you see this relationship in your work that that you have to be both kind of the metatextual curator of this exhibition, like like uh, um, unveiling visions at the mm-hmm. Schoenberg? And at the same time, the one who needs to sit down at the nitty gritty and control the representation of that that space. Is it like a host symbiote relation or is it <laughs> like a kind of a different um, valence for you? You know, um, that's a great question. And I, I love that idea of controlling the space because I often I actually just wrote an intro to a, a series of, of, of uh, middle grade comics that I'm co-editing for Abel and Marvel right now. And I use that term mm. for that idea of like the world outside your window, which is something that Marvel really likes to think about. And I was like, well, you know, the page is a window. So I kind of use like the same type mm. of metaphor. Like mm. you're actually, they're, they're viewfinders, you know, and you're seeing things through different spaces. And I often have said mm. that the, uh, the the white cube, the gallery space is like a page, you know? So when we, so when we first, mm. when, when we actually, uh, 
when Damien and I put together on, uh, Out of Sequence, you know, which is my first like major show, University of Illinois, it really was trying to put together like a comic. Like each each panel was each 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 uh, work was like a like a like a remix of a different type of comic. We wanted you to walk into the space and feel like you're in a comic book, that kind of thing. So yeah, we've I think I've always thought about the page that way. The other thing too is like, and I love the idea of like the display window, but I also think of like the the panel is like a, a stage, you know, because it's so much mm -hmm. about uh, comics that are performative too, you know, from like you're, right. you're you're saying the sound effects, you know. One of my favorite things when I was working on this Ghostlight project is like the editor would say, "We need a we need a sound effect here." <laughs> so I was like. <laughs> Scrakow, <laughs> like you know, you know, you have to. <laughs> what is that? Sound? Right, you know, that kind of thing, right? So it's like this performative aspect, and so when you're like looking at a a, a panel, you're really like kind of looking at it like a like a theater stage, you know, that kind of thing too. I love that idea of performativity and like curation, but yes, I think they're highly highly uh, connected, and I think that if you're adept enough to kind of work on both sides of it, you figure out where you where you need to go, you know. Mm. because of the collaborative aspect of comics too you know because you know you have a curator but you also have a team of people that are helping you install the show and you have people doing lighting and you know so it's it's a really a team effort and that's one, one of the things i like about comics too is like they're so collaborative you know i think what me and stacy robinson have actually done now is we've actually figured out a way to integrate the storytelling the metatextual aspects directly into the curatorial work too we create this this form called the uh, the illibus the illustrated syllabus. syllabus. The illustrated syllabus. Right. Yeah. So when you go to see like a show that Black Kirby has done, uh, which is a design fiction piece essentially, you're walking into a, 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 like a like a class itself. So you know, so so all the the text is there as far as like the illustrations. We have like pr like um, discussion prompts that are installed in the space, and also um, bibli a bibliography. So if you're a teacher and you go into like one of our shows. You can leave with a class. You know? <laughs> you know. Can I jump in with a real quick question about collaboration? Um, sure. So I'm thinking of Octavia Butler as one of your collaborators, that's you know, great. and and that's really interesting. I think um, a lot of our listeners will know that our last season was all about translation. And I think about adaptation as a kind of translation practice um, and a collaboration. But I'm just really interested in how you... I mean, really, the flat-footed version is how do you do an adaptation, but how you developed your craft of adaptation, especially with condensation, ex excerpting, uh, pacing. You know, how do you how do you get there? How do you do that work of of adapting something like Kindred or Parable? Of well, you know, you start. You, I think it's with anything with comics that you start small. You know, um, Damien and I. But first of all, you you find someone that you can work with and understand and love the work as much as you do. You know. Um, but David and I did some translation stuff early on, like smaller pieces, right? And so you have to figure it out, like it's, because it is like a different modality, and you have to realize that different mediums have different affordances, you know. And that's that's the first thing. As soon as you start adapting something, it's going to change, you know, whether it's good or bad. I mean, it's, it's, what what does the medium do for the story? You know, that's the first thing. You have to understand both mediums to a certain degree too, mm -hmm. uh, or different media that you're working with, and what can work and what can't work, you know. You don't want to you don't want to have Ang Lee's Hulk happen, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, no, that's not that's not a good translation on that. No. Um, so yeah, you start small. You know, you everybody wants to go in and they want to write like Lord of the Rings. I say, like, no, no, no. Let's write, let's start with uh, you know, a smaller snippet of an adventure with a hobbit. Let's start there first and then work up, you know. 
and understand, you know, how you're working with someone. But you're right. The, and the other thing is to respect the voice of the original creator of the work, you know, because yes, Octavia Butler is definitely a collaborator with us. And so you have to like get out of the way of your own ego and, and, and look at like, okay, what's the best thing for this particular story in this particular format? And that's the first thing. And respect each other's uh, decision-making process, you know? Um, yeah, and I think that's where the craft is like really just paying attention to the story and trying to figure out like, what's the best way to get it across? Like for instance, you know, in, in Kindred, you know, Dana, the main character was jumping through time, right? And, uh, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, uh, comics are really great at doing cutaways and in the middle of a comic book, you can actually totally have a, a schematic and it totally won't take you out of the story because comics speak in symbols, right? And if you understand that, you know that you can actually do like someone walking through a house or you can see the contents of her bag that she had when she time traveled or you can see like a map of something, you know, that kind of thing. And it doesn't really take you out. Now imagine doing that in like, you can describe it in a prose novel, but you do that in like a movie. It's like, what, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. It becomes like a surreal strangeness totally takes you out of the immersion of a film, you know. Uh, comics are really great at, at illustrating things, you know, in a sequence and that, and you and you have to understand those affordances, I think, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, I think that's that's the way I, I look at it, so. Yeah, just pushing on that, because that was one of the things I wanted to talk about as well, is the term, one of the terms I've seen you use a lot for adaptation is translation. Uh, and mm -hmm. I do think that it it's like a better mind frame for understanding what process uh takes place with what we call often adaptation that it's an actual yeah. translation and i would say the, the the branch of translation studies that doesn't talk about translations as a kind of derivative secondary work but as not another kind of iteration of something but rather its own kind of new creation it's an, another form right. of an original in in that way right a different kind of understanding but at the same time, it's just as every translation is an in, it's also an interpretation. Right? We often hear that. Right. And it's there's these kind of choices that you have to make where the interpretation becomes fact or something on the page, right? So one of the earliest conversations I had with Rob Barry, who I co-teach with, was he he's adapting uh, James Joyce's Ulysses in comics, has been doing so what? for years, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. And wow. like one of the first conversations we had was, okay, so Cyclops chapter. The Cyclops is this kind of chaos of cacophony of a polyphony of voices. Like, what are you going to do? Are you going to have a speech bubble like to that guy? In the, you know, And then you're going to mean that that means you've interpreted that that line in the novel is being said by that guy in that pub at that moment, right? Rather, or are you going to do a kind of, what are you going to do? Well, visually, a kind of cloud, a kind of like words hovering above the page. What's the solution that will take you away from that uh, interpretation becoming fact or so maybe i'd love to hear if you could talk about one of those decisions that you had to make make, make collaboratively mm -hmm. run your way you knew that your interpretation was going to have to become fact on the page <laughs> and you yeah. um you work through it and again what what made you materialize it in that way uh, i have a couple uh from because also uh, was fortunate enough to adapt um on the road uh, which is a Nettie Akora yes, short story. After the Rain. To, to After the Rain. And, um, you know, Nettie and I are really good friends, and she was very involved with the, you know, with with uh, the adaptation, um, but also very hands-off, you know, because we only had a couple of things we wanted to change, but we did have to change things to to fit into this, this other medium. So a couple of things that really were awesome that we were able to do. Uh, uh, there's, this, there's this line in the original story where she, where she's talking about like 
uh, Shioma, who is the, uh, the the main character, and she said that she smelled something that smelled like life and death simultaneously. <laughs> and I was like, how do you draw yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> how do you, how, what does that look like? You know what I'm saying? But what we did is like, okay, we had to speak in symbols. So first of all, like comics seem to have this kind of inherent surreal quality, you know, to them too. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that everything on a comics page has the ability to tell a story from like the type of colors you use. In fact, color is like a soundtrack to comics to me. You know, mm -hmm. I love colors. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, the type of line work that are that you use for the panels. Um, the is, is is the image like cross hatched or is it not? You know, the simplicity of it. You know, everything has a has an inherent like a particular value when it comes to like getting across the story. That's so exciting. It's also really daunting too, right? Yeah. So yeah. so so we thought like okay, life. Okay, let's look at a flower meaning life, right? And you know, just put in a skull meaning death. And so what we did is it came with this design. Me and David Brain, uh, the artist uh, who worked on, I did the colors and the adaptation. So we had this like skull flower, right? And um, which was really cool. And so when you see her holding her you know, nose and she's smelling the, the the death and life at the same time, you would see this symbol of a death flower everywhere. So even when she wasn't reacting to it, we could actually use it as a as a signifier that that smell is there. Like once she realizes that that that's what what the question is, I mean what what the what the uh, the story is needing. We didn't need her to react to it anymore. Then you would see it and say, "Oh, that's that smell is there." You know, see, so illustrating a smell that was really cool. Mm. Uh, as a, a, something that's really particular to comics. The other thing is that, as you know, the gutter space is also a really great way to to tell a story. Right. So, the gutter is the is the space between the panels on a comics page. Uh, just for listeners who don't know that, sorry. Um, so one of the things about that story was Shioma was unexpectedly having tension between her Americanness and her Nigerianness, right. right? She's having like a crisis of culture, so to speak. Like she's basically like coming across ancestral spirits that she doesn't understand. So what we did is we actually made the, the, the panel, the panels were like the actual world, like our real world. And then the, and behind the panel in the gutters, you could see all this weirdness happening. Yes, um, that she could actually have access to, but we are, you know, we could see her reacting to it, um, but it's creeping slowly into the panel, and so that was one of my most exciting things. But once we, once I read the short story, understood what was happening. I said, "Man, you could illustrate this tension mm. by showing these two worlds colliding, like literally." That's a short story, but of course, we talk about it as a graphic novel. You know, just another way yes. in which kind of when you turn into comics, that term or the idea of novelization kind of you know changes. Yes. But yes, so one one of the things here that really strikes me about comics, and I often try to talk about it with with my students, is that you know with comics you always have to be thinking about the materiality of of its own presentation. So covers, dust jackets, and papers, chapter transitions, yep. right? In a novel. That can be very bland in terms of design, right? I mean, you're you're trained as a designer, so you know you turn a page, right. chapter four. It's just like a little four on the next page at the top, right? <laughs> like that's all that's all you get. Yeah. But in comics, in your comics, like whether it's you know Parable of the Sower, when you change years, suddenly you give us this you know double page bleed spread, right? Full bleed. Yeah. You get a whole different sense of things. Plants from an encyclopedia. You get a a detailed map of California with a a ring of coffee to give us that sense of this is an artifact. Fact. This is like a lived artifact that's been handled by human hands, right? 
uh, right. the, the blood that the, the the end the strokes of blood you know that that book mm. and kindred like if you open these mm. pages you are entering into the blood bloody world you know those kinds of mm. elements the dust jacket right. you can put on remove all those kinds of things so that materiality like everything in the comic has to be thought about from front cover to end um and so maybe you know talk about some of the your favorite moves or so your the gestures that you've the decisions you've made in terms of design to augment enhance the process of translation of, of an original oh, work yeah. or even your own work how are you going to kind of use all the secret resources of comics in that way mm -hmm. towards that kind of overall effect yeah no that's a great question you know um so something like kindred for instance right i mean um man, we thought so much about color mm. for that book. Because a lot of times when you think about time travel, right? I mean, if, you, if you're in the current day, a lot of times that is the brightest color. Like it's 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 in color and it's modern, right? That kind of thing. <laughs> right. And then when you, time, when you time travel back into time and it's kind of gray or it's got like an overcast or it's, it looks vintage or, you know, that kind right. of thing. Right. Classic example, something like Pleasantville, right? And where it's literally in black and white. Right. <laughs> the film. So... <laughs> But here's the thing, though. So for us, you know, 1976 is the past, right? And so mm -hmm. if you look at, if you listen, if you read Octavia Butler's original novel, she says that um, first of all, you have to think like her and Kevin, her husband, have just moved into the into the house, you know, if you know the story, and sees they're still unpacking the first truck trip back to Maryland, 1800s in Maryland. Uh, happens while they're literally unpacking books and stuff, right? So they haven't, even, haven't had a chance to even like live in that house. That house is still just a box, right? You know, a box of boxes, even, right. right? There's no memories that they've made there, mm. you know. Um, it's not a home for them yet. And so what starts to happen is when she travels back to slavery time, she starts to feel more at home there because there's people that care about it, there's people she's literally related to, you know, yeah. people that actually that need her in some ways too, you know, it's, it, and it's an unsettling comfort. And that's actually what makes Kindred so horrific, actually, how, how easy it is for you to, 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 to settle into slavery and be content. That's really, that's really powerful. So we decided to do, uh, because Octavia Butler said that it was so vibrant and so real mm. that we decided to pass full color. Right. Right. And then we decided to design the, uh, the 1976 with this kind of like, as you stated, like it, it, it was literally based off of like wounds. So right. when I when I chose the color palette, I actually looked at a lot of like scab. I, I did image uh, <laughs> uh, searches for the coloration of say like scabbed over wounds, and so that's why like that bloody color. It's literally like that brick red or like maroon color. That's the lead color, you know. And actually, even even with the, the uh, even with the um, the past you know i would i would use that kind of bruised color as like the lead color palette mm. you know? and it's, it leads you throughout the entire book because it's about blood relations right but also right. the trauma of slavery and, and uh, you know that kind of thing so that was a, that was a definite decision there the other thing i loved about the color palettes in particular were like um the the lighting that for instance like when, when you're when you're in the past at night you don't have electricity you're, you're using like you know uh Lamp lanterns and like you know, you know candles and such right. right so um damien told me about this film uh called barry linden by Kubert. Um, cooper cooper and he actually made cameras because that's what he would do <laughs> he made cameras to shoot in low light like that and mm. so if you look at the, if you look at barry linden it's very the cast of it is very yellow 
you know, it's like this yellowish ochre, you know, kind of color. So I literally would use, I used images of Barry Lyndon to kind of sample what my color palette would be for the inside. And then of course, if you look at the color wheel, design-wise, the opposite of, of that gold color is a purple. So if you look out, so when, if you go in the past and you look at like those color pages of Dana running through the night, you know, I use a lot of like dark blues and purples and stuff like that to get, a, to get across what the opposite of that color is. I love doing that kind of stuff. It was just, it's one of my favorite things about the color. Mm -hmm. And another thing design-wise is that Dana's shirt is a is is a, a kind of a teal color. So if you if you if you do some research around like you know southern the southern Gullah people, you know, the uh from the Channel Islands, that color is called Haint Blue. And it's supposed to represent a spirit, it's supposed to ward off evil spirits, mm. stuff like that. So we like the idea of her like haunting her own past. Because they looked at her as a spirit. Like they they they're like, how are you popping in and out of like you haven't aged a bit, like you're not <laughs> human, that kind of thing, right? So these are some of the decisions that we were making, you know, as far as like like deep research around color and and you look at the page design and stuff like that. That's amazing, yeah, yeah. So many choices were were uh, were right on there. I mean, it's also you know one of the things I think Butler was wanting to come across with the novel was to kind of make the past living a living past real, right? And so by mm -hmm. making it the more vivid, the more kind of color. Uh, relation that, that in terms of not as we kind of flip that relation as you said right between the traditions or the cliches of showing the past and and the future exactly. you're kind of forcing people oh well this is what it would actually be like um so um some of these elements remind me of kind of another aspect here which is all the research that you've had to do all the the solutions that you've had to come up with really has comes with the process it comes with before you actually sit down to do it all that wrestling with god you know with that, that has to happen right before before midnight and so in a way kind of comics kind of dramatize that solution on the page i feel that that's really tied to kind of visuality and the politics of representation and how in comics if you're going to you know represent race you, uh, if race is a construct if the if you're going to make a skin tone and phenotype that's you could, you can't escape that it's right there on the page so you know right. dana you you're not sure she you don't know she's black from the first line you know when you read the, the prose novel it comes no, it comes don't. later but but <laughs> but in in the graphic novel you open the page prologue you know i lost my arm there she is she's a black woman you know so exactly. and, and, <laughs> you know that so yeah. so you have to have your solution beforehand that's, it's it's a really interesting conundrum, right? Because comics also kind of, they can traffic in uh, visual shorthand, mm. right? Like stereotypes and things of that nature too, which they are literally like infusing from different like social or, or cultural norms as far as like how we see each other. I mean, it could easily make extremely, you know, racist, reprehensible images uh, or extremely make very sexist or classist images or ageist images um, because that's the nature of the form, right? You can actually dramatize or make hyperbolic images. Um, but I feel like, you know, if you understand what you're doing, you can actually like uh, pull back and make some really, really interesting conversations about all those different things. Mm -hmm. And um, so I started thinking about like race itself as this type of uh, technology or deliverable in a certain way, right? And that, you know, a lot of times, you know, comics and other types of, you know, visual media have actually helped to, uh, to propagate that deliverable, you know, if you think about it as a designed object. So 
fairly recently, I've been thinking about this notion of what I call uh, critical race design studies. You know, thinking about design as a as a I mean, excuse me, as a race as a design object and how mm. it shapes and it's, it's it, 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 how it's shaped by society and it shifts according to what people need from it, that kind of thing. But you definitely have to like sell it, you know, as a product, you know. So you have these propagated like you know signs and caricatures and things of that nature, right? And so knowing all of that, you know, I try to figure out how to unpack that as subtly as possible when I'm making images, you know. But I, mm. I do blatantly make, you know, black skin and black noses and you know, and and the phenotype is right there. Like you said, it's it's evident, it's just matter of fact, you know. Um and by doing so, I think it kind of uh, is a form of resistance to mm. that. Or, or you know, comics won't let you forget the body. Like, did you? You can't. You can't forget oh. the body in comics ever. You can. I think you can forget it when you read a prose novel, but not a mm -hmm. comic. And I feel that you've kind of used that to um, kind of this kind of for. I guess for purposes of social justice, but also not just that, but for storytelling, right? For making the story happen. <laughs> yeah, you know, it goes back to the idea of like which window you know, we're looking through, right? And, you know, I, I'm, you know, I, I grew up, you know, lower working class, <laughs> you know, uh, in the country. I grew up in Mississippi, you know, in a, you know, post-civil rights era. And I was transported through these comics, you know, especially like, you know, the stuff I was reading. It's like, man, I felt like I could see these buildings. And, you know, I, want, I wanted to go to Queens and meet Peter Parker, you know, that kind of thing, right. you know? So they were, they were doing a great job of representing that particular perspective, you know? But in the story that we've created, um, the the touchstone person is very similar to what uh, Claremont did with, with Kitty Pride, where we, mm. we our introduction to a new aspect of the story is through like a teenage girl who happens to be African American and right. named after Toni Morrison, right? <laughs> so you know, and that's that's your vehicle through which you see this. And so, you know, um, one of the things, like you said, I wanted to do, you know, with with cartooning and this particular or, or thinking about the story is to um, normalize the the mundane aspects of you know life of, of just being black in america you know this the mundane mm. nature of that one one more thing to go is back to the archive and some of the thing that you said about kind of being human and kind of carrying that flame one thing mm -hmm. that I, uh, I found super brilliant and inspiring is one of the ways in which you've spelled the word archive is like a-r-k-i-v-e mm -hmm. like arc and which of course brings up the notion of Noah, right? And his whole business mm -hmm. of like, and so that seems such a powerful image. And I'm the idea of an archive, not just as a destination, but rather as a vehicle or kind of prosthetic that that is its purpose is to actually to preserve a diversity of life, right? I mean, if you break it down right. to the, the the bottom of what the Noah's Ark is, is to kind of preserve a diversity of wildlife as much as possible. And mm -hmm. you know, we, it's interesting, we often think of as Noah as kind of like a solo dude, but he has a family too. Speaking back to collaborations, like all that work that goes into building the Ark and, and all of that, right? That got to be put in there. And it's both, because I feel that that's something I feel when I read your work is there's there's a plundering of an archive, but it's not as a kind of as a destination. I think as scholars, we often think of an archive. This is a place where you go and it's this this kind of this end in itself in a way. But it's really a means to something else or maybe a prosthetic or a vehicle, a spaceship. Like for you, I would totally see that it would be a Noah Ark spaceship, not uh, yes. not, not a water vessel. Right. Uh, and um, yeah, I'm wondering if like part of your. Um, your outlook on things or how you you work on this is to for your works to become this kind of archive that 
propels us toward this diversity of life, towards a new destination among the stars that we maybe we, we don't know where we're going yet, but we're going among the stars. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because yes, I, I love play on, I love like, you know, playing on words. It's something that me and uh, Stacey Robinson do a lot with Black Kirby. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, it's a, uh, I look at it as an Afrofuturist process too, yeah. because I'm influenced by um, the idea of creating like new words. Like, you know, I, I'm, uh, I love, uh, what's his name? Uh, is it Isvan Sazoni Rone's book on science fiction, you know, where he talks about the idea of like, uh, new neologisms being created for like new technologies, right? I like the fact that you use the word prosthetic, right? Too, like the idea of like the prosthetic impulse or thinking about like this is an extension of ourselves, right. you know. I think put that on your illibus, yeah, yes, yeah. It's gonna go on, it's already there, yeah. it's already there. <laughs> no, but see, that, that idea of um, you know, this being an extension of ourselves is so great to me, and yes, mm -hmm. definitely thinking about like travel. You know, that's a really big aspect of like Afrofuturism is like, you know, uh, the vessel of, of like, so we're putting like these 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 uh, pieces of information in a vessel or time capsule and sending them into the future. What are some like, are these are there come some future dream adaptations that you're you hoping to work on, will work on, already working on oh, or what's man. the next what's the next thing oh. for for the the curator, John Jennings? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question because there's so many things. Um, so you know what? Actually, and as far as a curator, I mean, so one of one of the next uh, adaptations that we're working on that's getting ready to drop uh, is um, is called "The Last Count of Monte Cristo," mm. Afrofuturist, solar punk, futuristic version of the Count of Monte Cristo, based off the coast of Africa, 180 years after the polar ice caps melt. So it's actually still. <laughs> So it's still a uh, a pirate story, but we're using like solar power, wind power. Amazing. That's really, so it's playing off of yeah. Dumas' own uh, racial heritage, That's right? Correct. Yes. Oh, wow. and yes. And also the fact that uh, it's one of the, it's based off of one of the, maybe the only novel that he wrote by himself, because a lot of people don't realize that Dumas actually had a, a collaborator, you know, uh, a ghost, a kind of a ghost collaborator. I forgot his name right now. But um, mm -hmm. there's, this, there's this novel called George that he wrote that was directly related to like, I think, a slave revolt. And it's one of the only stories that he wrote that actually relates to race. Mm -hmm. you know? and so that actually was an inspiration for the Count of Monte Cristo, you know. And um, that's it's just so much so much culture that I was like, this is so great. Wow. So yeah, so that's uh that's been adapted by Ayiza Jama Everett, who's my co-creator of Black Box of Bones, and um, right, and also Tristan Roach, who is uh, from Barbados, and Barbados is a Barbadian artist um, from a space that could be definitely affected by climate change you know so it's kind of a clarify mm, story mm -hmm. it's beautifully done i mean i could you know it's a beautiful book i think i don't know if we have the lettered version of it yet but it's i think it's going to be i think it's lovely uh another adaptation we're working on right now um i got kenitra brooks uh you know to adapt red dirt witch by nk jemison into a graphic novel oh. and the great ashley amanda wood this is an artist on it and it's beautiful i think it's gonna be it's a great adaptation like she'd never done one before you couldn't tell it was really well wow done. Um, is this for megascope my dream adaptation so all this is megascope right. yeah so uh one of the things uh that i'm really excited about is i want to we have a pitch in from jabari asim and myself and david Bram to do some uh, adaptation of henry dumas's work so i'm also a huge fan mm. of henry dumas Right, well, Box of Bones, Ark of Bones, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's very much influenced by 
that's exactly where the title comes right. from. <laughs> yeah. And so, I, and so what I've been doing too is not only being interested in those types of adaptations, but also adapting and fusing together to almost like a, um, an Afrocentric, uh, mythopoetic, you know, of like a, a connected universe of all these different characters. Like for instance, the Megascope to me is very, is almost as significant as the time machine to me, like that, that changes, uh, uh, Bois into like, uh, to our, our HG Wells, you know, mm, that kind mm -hmm. of thing, right? So what happens if the Megascope is given enough power that it becomes a portal, right? Mm. So actually what I've been doing is actually utilizing these diegetic prototypes in different stories on purpose to kind of perpetuate those ideas, you know? So for instance, we're doing um, me and Nolan Hopkinson and the great Steve Bissett, who co-created uh, John Constantine. We're working on a book together wow. called um, Night Comes Walking. This is for Megascope as well where it posits uh, Zona Hurston as a per paranormal investigator. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and she uses a megascope in the story, that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, you know, just trying to tie all these things together. Well, this is so inspiring. I feel, John, like your arc is very full and we're all very lucky because every day sure is a flood. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but as we sail to the end of the episode, um, I'm going to ask you our signature question that we're asking all our guests this season. And I'm actually really excited to hear your answer because it's clear you are always creating and co-creating. So it makes the answer to this question maybe more difficult. And the question is, other than your actual writing supplies and devices, what do you need to sit down and write or draw? You know what? Um, a shower, you know, <laughs> a shower. Yeah. And, and well, done coffee. So a shower is not to me is like not more than it's nothing it's uh, it's not just waking me up or actually just cleaning my body but i find that um being near water or having have being in a shower actually like stimulates the i do a lot of writing you know and if you <laughs> in the shower so if you ever like listen to like is john's in the shower you know i'm in there because i'm talking to myself i'm, I'm actually i'm actually writing dialogue <laughs> You know, and it's funny because like my friend Nettie's like that too. She so much so that she keeps like a um, a waterproof like tab or something near the shower so she can she can write because you get ideas. It's almost like it's, the water's running over you and you can see and hear a lot better or clearer. It's weird, you know. So I, so I tend to like take these really long showers and you know and I'm like you know and I'm writing in here, you know. <laughs> so it's kind of like so it starts there, and then what happens is when I when I you know feel refreshed and stuff, I can sit down and I can actually you know, go about my, my creation or whatever. And, it, and it's actually pretty much for mostly creative work, but also like if I'm doing something nonfiction, I can think of the theories and maybe make the the, the locks and tumblers click a little better, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that and coffee. <laughs> 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 well, well, <laughs> this is like the world's most productive showers that I've that I've heard of. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I feel very humbled and very shamed, but uh, also it's really all about the arc. We're bringing it, bringing it full circle here. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much to, to both of you for this really exhilarating conversation. I just want to remind our listeners that uh, you can buy both of our guests' books, including the brand new Silver Surfer Ghostlight in many bookstores and online. And we'll put some links on the episode's webpage so they're easy to find. And as always, we're grateful to the Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship, to Public Books for its partnership, and we acknowledge the support of Duke University. Hannah Jorgensen is our website manager and transcript editor. Rebecca Otto is our social media manager. And Connor Hibbert is our sound engineer. 
Novelists from past seasons include Chang Rae Lee, Teju Cole, Ruth Ozeki, Jennifer Egan, and George Saunders. But tune in next time for an episode featuring the novelist Erica Wirth. So from all of us at Novel Dialogue, thanks so much for tuning in. Keep listening and keep reading. Keep reading.